Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey folks, welcome back to Out of Place Season 2. If you're just starting the show, I do encourage you to start with Season 1, or at least the first episode of Season 2. Uh, but if you've already listened and binged through everything... Thanks for tuning in and uh, coming back. I don't have much to talk about this week, so without further ado, this week's episode. When I was very young, I learned there was a plan we're supposed to follow. Go to school, get a sixth form, get your A-levels, get a university, get a degree, get a job, turn it into a career, get married at some point, have kids, save, retire, go on cruises, die. And no one actually sat me down and, and said that's what I was supposed to do, but there was never any suggestion I might do anything different. I remember my dad talking about which university I was going to apply to as if there was never any other option on the table. Then at some point, and, and I can't remember exactly when, I asked, why? And what's the point? We do all this stuff and then you die, but what purpose does it serve? What does anything we do mean if we're just going to die at the end of it all? I think the answer is that we're supposed to come up with a point ourselves, but doing what I do, that's not easy. Every day I fill my brain with dead worlds and the ways they died. Nuclear wars, asteroids smacking into the planet from space, pandemics, supervolcanoes that turn the sky opaque so everyone freezes. It's difficult to find any meaning in that. They might be in another timeline, another dimension, but they're still people and they still die. There's not much I can find to hang on to when I'm so intensely aware we could all just wink out of existence at any moment for no reason. Not as a punishment or even an act of malice, just an extinction as random as the fact we're alive at all. And maybe that sort of thinking is the reason I don't really gel with the rest of the office. The IT guys aren't very talkative at the best of times. Doug from Facilities is jolly enough, but I notice he doesn't ask me to join him when he and the security guards go for a beer on Fridays. 
I'd probably come up with a reason not to go, but it's nice to be asked. I did play a couple of rounds of table football with Rico, who works with the logistics team. He seems okay. But I don't think I have much in common with someone who grew up in the L.A. barrio. I wonder if he sits staring at his computer screen, trying to work out why he's doing any of this. Of course, I didn't get a regular graduate position out of uni. I certainly didn't get married. Instead, I'm collating the data from the last extant mission. This one was prompted in the usual way by a data package being sent back through a dimensional rift by one of our orbital probes. They can't transmit through the breach, so they have to send a little black box with a parachute through back to our base timeline and a bunch of guys in a jeep drive all over New Mexico looking for it. I'm glad I don't have that job. It gets bloody hot out there. This particular probe had photographed some pretty troubling sights. Some of the large cities showed signs of being destroyed by fire. Shanghai, Mumbai, Dhaka, Mexico City. The atmosphere was strangely clean, which sounds like a good sign, but indicates industry and power had ceased or never started. The sea levels had risen too, and average temperatures were significantly higher than our baseline. That's nothing unusual, there are plenty of timelines with climate change, but it doesn't usually result in the silence of a dead civilization, and that's the most telling sign. No television or radio signals, no satellites beaming junk data across the globe, no GPS pings, no aircraft transponders. Our world is deafeningly noisy from orbit. This one was quiet. That made it a target for extant. Without a specific location apparent from the orbital data, the team would usually be sent to its default location of New York City. However, climate change had caused the sea levels to rise and much of the city was flooded. The team was therefore sent to a backup location near Atlanta, Georgia. The team's capsule emerged just north of the town of Riverdale and some way south of Atlanta International Airport. The landing was rough, as the capsule was about 50 metres above the ground and only three of its four parachutes deployed, but injuries were limited to bruises and scrapes. The first thing the team saw upon emerging from the capsule was a structure about 35 metres high, in open ground south of Atlanta proper. The structure was made of wood and covered in salvaged materials, sheets of plastic and metal. It was a roughly humanoid figure depicted from the waist up with an elongated head resembling the skull of a horse. Banners and pennants flew from it. Private Quintero speculated the structure resembled a wicker man, something for a religious purpose, an idol or a focus of worship. I've seen the pictures Warrant Officer Poulter took of the structure, and Quintero wasn't wrong. It had arms that reached out ahead of it, as if imploring a distant benefactor. The team approached it and saw large amounts of refuse heaped up around its base. On closer inspection, this consisted mostly of apparently valuable items. Electronics, designer clothing, even a number of luxury cars left in the open to tarnish and decay. Private Sanditch was rummaging through the abandoned objects when he let out a cry of alarm. He had stumbled across a cradle, upholstered in rich dark velvet and trimmed with gold embroidery. Inside were the skeletal remains of an infant. The team elected to leave the structure alone and proceed into the city. Destruction and signs of abandonment were everywhere. Houses were burned. Buildings appeared looted and gutted. Heaps of charred debris remained from what must have been enormous bonfires. 
Other buildings had been repurposed. The team passed close by a hangar on the edge of the airport which had been covered in banners and streamers, which on closer inspection were long lists of names embroidered on strips of fabric. The hangar's interior was full of scavenged domestic and office chairs arranged in rows facing a stage, around which were heaps of valuables and personal objects from fur coats to wads of money, prosthetic limbs, framed photographs of families and pieces of jewellery. Sergeant Brand admonished Sandwich not to take any of it, to which Sandwich denied any such intention. From the hangar's rafters hung a plastic banner which read, Kneel and be delivered. These were just examples. At every turn, the team saw similar sights of desperation and destruction on a deliberate and symbolic scale. The bonfires were usually at crossroads, some of them on freeways where cars had been parked together and deliberately burned, with wood and refuse used to fuel the fire, leaving masses of steel welded together. They also found graves. Hundreds of them in makeshift cemeteries where people had just dug into whatever area of open ground was convenient. The older graves had crosses or a few symbols of other religions. The newer ones had animal skulls on bundles of sticks tied together to resemble a spindly body, not dissimilar in concept to the huge idol the team had first seen. Atlanta is a backup location, partly because of its central location and the fact it's safe from rising sea levels, which are a feature of many extinction scenarios. Another reason is the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, which has its headquarters in Atlanta. Intelligence on disease and other health hazards can sometimes be found there. The state of the city, however, made it less likely the team would find any profit in searching the CDC building. All government buildings or other buildings of authority, such as police stations, had been wrecked and burned. Many of them had images of the figure, with its animal skull head, set up outside or in the middle of the charred remains. After the first few, Poulter stopped taking photographs of them, for there were so many. The team quickly identified them as human. They were disturbed by the passage of time, but they appeared to be from bodies arranged in concentric circles, with their feet towards the idol, very deliberately placed. The team found an intact apartment complex, and after securing the ground floor, paused there to rest and eat. Their mood was poor. Private Sandwich speculated that zombies were responsible for the destruction, a line of reasoning quickly shut down by Sergeant Brand. The team decided to scout ahead before moving on. Warrant Officer Poulter spent two hours conducting drone surveillance from the air, reporting the whole downtown area appeared to have been destroyed by fire. This included the area where the CDC headquarters was located. However, he also noted a militarized area around the city's Spellman College, which, unlike most of the rest of the city, appeared relatively intact. The team was running out of mission time with which to complete their investigations, so they decided to head to the college before returning to the capsule location. The college campus had been barricaded with physical defenses and overlooked by watchtowers. The approach seemed to have worked because the campus buildings had not been burned or looted. On the perimeter of the site were thousands of carved or bundled wooden figures with animal skull heads, propped up as if watching the college. The team approached carefully but made no contacts as they passed through the defences and used ropes to get over the fencing surrounding the campus grounds. Some of the college had been used as barracks with dozens of beds and the remnants of military gear like fatigues and plate carriers left behind. 
Many of the buildings were set up as offices or workstations. One whole building was given over to communications with radio masts installed so tall they'd been visible from across the city. In the grounds were several generators providing power to the offices, suggesting the city's power had gone out before the college was repurposed. The team searched the offices for evidence of what work was being done there. It quickly became apparent it was concerned primarily with agriculture. Maps of the United States were marked up with expected crop yields and climate information. One conference room had been used to display several versions of a pamphlet explaining basic agricultural concepts like animal husbandry and growing crops. Warrant Officer Poulter noted there were far fewer computers than would be expected in a workplace of this size, and that much of the work was done on paper instead of digitally. Banks of filing cabinets contained card indexes of communications with other federal agencies and sites, confirming the Atlanta site was run by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. The site had been in contact with what remained of other government agencies, and most of the communications logged consisted of urgent requests for information or guidance. With the team approaching a deadline determined by their mission time, they gathered the parts of the card index that seemed to contain the most relevant data on the situation in the United States as whatever crisis this was unfolded. Finally got in touch with the National Weather Service in Maryland. They confirmed it was a flare. That doesn't do us much good. We need proper forecasts for the next year. But, you know, they're only in contact with a handful of their local forecast offices. They, they asked us for advice on what to do. The line cut off before I could tell them that's what we needed from them. I explained it wasn't the information that was the problem. We've had emergency guidelines on small-scale subsistence farming for decades, ready to go. It's the printing. How are we supposed to get a hundred million pamphlets out to the population when the paper mills and printers are all down? There isn't one of them in the country that isn't run by a computer somewhere along the line. And who's supposed to deliver them when the postal service doesn't exist? But the plan was to make leaflets to teach the population how to survive, so that's what we did. We got through to San Francisco at last! Oh, they got a radio working and are trying to coordinate the West Coast. Not that the folks over there are having much luck. The people over there are the same as over here. It's just it's weird how the folklore of a skull-headed god offering deliverance spread without television or internet. If we could harness that, we might organize some kind of concerted effort to get through this. Open up seed banks, parcel them out to locals, get militias going to defend communities, come up with plans for the next season, next year, next five. Instead, uh, get 10 minutes on the horn with San Fran, say California is being evacuated as the crazies move west. Uh, there are prophets everywhere. People are sacrificing the weakest members of their families to the thing. Uh, oh, and they built an idol on the Golden Gate. 200 meters high, burning day and night. A hundred years ago, we would have been fine. 200, we wouldn't have even noticed. Confirmed from Homeland Defense, the flare knocked out all the air traffic control, even the military stuff. There are a few prop planes that can fly, but nothing with a microchip. Getting help from overseas isn't a possibility right now. I heard from the station on the Keys that there are boats coming in across the Caribbean full of people who think the United States must be safe. 
Truth is, I expect we have it as bad as anyone else. Maybe worse. Those people say the failing of their farms in Central and South America means there's no way to support themselves. The people who know how to survive can't because we broke the climate. And the people in farmable climates don't know how anymore. We're moving out in eight hours. Outposts west of the city confirm they're being punished hard. Soldiers here have enough ammo for about 20 seconds of automatic fire, then we're down to sticks and stones. We have enough work and vehicles and gas for most of us. I think, uh, I think we're anticipating some won't make it out once we open the gates. I don't know where we're heading for. My guess is we'll choose the clearest highway and just floor it. I can see the idols burning from the roof of the office building. There's no promised land free of this madness. There's no government holdout around Washington or Cheyenne Mountain or Area 51. No one has said it out loud, but we're just rolling the dice. Let's see how long we survive. I spent the last 12 hours working up a legacy scenario. It's based on linking up with isolated communities who, for whatever reason, maintain the agricultural and self-sufficiency skills without the reliance on technology. Religious communities, Amish, plain people, militia and survivalist compounds, areas of extreme rural poverty. Not necessarily the easiest people to get to work together. We send agents between them to share surplus, seed stock, maybe even help keep them from inbreeding. Not sure which people we will have left, or how they're going to make it from the Pennsylvania Amish to a survivalist compound in Arizona, but assuming they can, I've written down what they're supposed to do. Establish lines of communication. Set up way stations on the routes between. Start work on a code of law, governments, defense. It sounds easy, the way I've written it. I'm not going to have to put any of it into practice, of course. We're leaving tonight, and we're not coming back. We'd rather die on the road or under the open sky rather than killed with bricks and kitchen knives in here. That means these might be the last words I ever write. And wouldn't you just know? I can't think of anything to say. The team made it back to the capsule without incident. Quintero and Sandich spotted movement on the horizon to the south of the city, but by the time Poulter got a drone off the ground, any contacts had disappeared, assuming they'd been there in the first place. The team re-entered the capsule and traversed the dimensional breach again. They returned to our timeline within 15 minutes and 200 meters of their predicted location. Not bad. The team was subdued during their debrief. They'd seen the remains of a dead civilization before, of course. The death and destruction were nothing new, but the idols were. Quintero's upbringing was religious. Graven images and all that. The psych guys say it left more of an impression on him than he let on. Poulter took it badly too. Science was supposed to save the day, but here it failed. Not bad science, not science wielded for the wrong reasons, it just didn't have the answers. Poulter's religion was gone from that world too. The most likely culprit is a solar flare. 
The sun sends out solar winds of charged particles all the time. A massive enough event on the sun can send out a powerful enough wind to mess around with the Earth's magnetosphere. Compasses turn the wrong way, electric currents are induced in the planet's crust. The strongest flares can knock out communications and electronics. Stronger still, and everything electrical is destroyed. Our timeline hasn't suffered a flare of that scale in the post-electrical age. I think the target timeline did. It wiped out everything we rely on in our modern world. The internet, telephones, power generation, streetlights, motor transports, refrigeration, running water. It didn't wipe out society on its own, though. It only did that in conjunction with the climate change that preceded it. The parts of the world most protected from a technology failure were the ones that relied on agriculture, but climate change made that agriculture untenable on its own. With no imports or support, those places weren't survivable. The still temperate parts of the world were the ones that had lost the most when the flare hit. Those were the places that had lost the knowledge of how to farm and achieve self-sufficiency. So instead of ploughing a field or herding up some animals, the people saw deliverance in other ways. I don't know how the death cult got started. It might be something ancient and atavistic, present in all human cultures ready to re-emerge at a time of crisis. However it came about, it offered a deliverance that felt much more likely than digging holes in the ground and hoping that somehow enough food would grow to get you through the winter. People offered everything they had to it in the hope they would conquer death. It became a focus for their despair and their frustration at not having an enemy to blame for the sudden dark age that had fallen. Saner heads tried to organize people and spread the knowledge of how to become self-sufficient, but they were hampered by the absence of communications. They were few and isolated and surrounded by the death cult on all sides. Maybe some of them established farming colonies or linked up with the already isolated communities that shunned modern technology, but I doubt there were many of them. Assuming someone survived to rebuild, how long would it take? A hundred years? A thousand? Would all the knowledge lost to the flare and the collapse ever be recovered? Maybe the cult would survive too and pin back human development with its bloodthirsty madness. Whatever the outcome, a solar flare combined with climate change has been duly added to the list of existential threats to the project's perfect world. I'm not sure what they'll do to mitigate it, but that's not my department. One thing I know I shouldn't contemplate is what I would do in the scenarios the team's evidence describe. I don't think there's a single one where I wouldn't have been among the first wave of hapless victims, dying confused and terrified as the world fell apart. It's not contemplating my mortality that hits the hardest, it's realising my incompetence. I couldn't feed myself off the land for a year. I couldn't even pick up a gun and defend the people who could. Survival situations generally don't need data analysts. I just have to hope that if the end ever does come to a world where I happen to be, that I'm around people who know what to do. That they'll let me leech off them and order me around. I hope the project has some trained up just in case. I hope there's a plan to take care of all of us if things go south on a grand scale. But then again... That's not my department.
Out of Place was written and created by Ben Counter. Sound design and music was done by Dana Kreisman. The show is produced by Pacific S. Obadiah. And Andrew is played by Ben Counter. USDA Worker 1 was Janine Bauer. USDA Worker 2 was Tal Minier. And this is a Midnight Disease production. For more information, visit midnightdisease.net. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.